praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, musicians. Thank you for leading us. Certainly, worthy is the Lamb. Well, let's get out our Bibles and or our tablets, electronic devices, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry. Just grab that pew Bible in front of you, that hardback black Bible, and turn to page 1356, and you'll find Paul's first letter written to the church at Thessalonica. And we started uh, last week talking about this amazing uh, place in Scripture, and we're going to work our way through it over the next couple of months, verse by verse, section by section. We made a real dent last week. We got through verse 1. <laughs> Amen. So we'll make a little progress today. But remember, uh, it, it's a very uh, pivotal uh, beginning to the, the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And we talked about last week that every life has a story. Every single life has a story. And your life and my life tell a story. And whether we realize it or not, it's unfolding with each passing day that we live. And I think this morning we should begin by uh, asking ourselves the important question, which is, what is the story, what is the story that I'm telling with my life in Christ. That's really where I want your heart to focus today as you fill in those first blanks on your listening. God, what, what is the story that I'm telling with my life in Christ? You know, every, every day that God gives us, is, it's a gift, and it's a, it's a one-time gift, and once it's gone, it's gone. We don't get another chance to relive a day. So every night we lay our heads down, whatever has been done or not done in that day, well, that opportunity's gone, and then we, all we have is uh, to look forward to be the next day or the Lord coming back and getting us. Well, let's pray as we think about our story. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on today. Father, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, this is a time that you've set aside for us to focus on what you have to say directly to us. Now, we have heard through testimony, much that you have done and said. Now we're going to look directly at what you have spoken right out of your mouth, breathed right from your spirit onto the pages of Scripture. And now we ask that you would give us ears to hear and that you would write them in our heart and that we might be changed by the hearing, reading, and studying of your word and that it would all be for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So really, Paul is writing a letter, but he's also telling a story. And it's the story of a group of people who were living in Thessalonica. That was their setting. That was the setting of their story. They just happened to be living in this city the same way you happened to be living in Gulfport or wherever it was that you were living. And uh, they were living there, and that's the setting. And then God, in His amazing sovereignty, he sends the greatest gift that people could ever receive, which is the gospel. It just so happened that the, the instrument he used to send the gospel was the Apostle Paul, but it's really a story about God sending this gift to Thessalonica. Now, 
I, I just want you to think for a moment about we're, we're in, at, the, at the dawn of the explosion of Christianity. And so uh, the, the gospel is beginning to slowly now start to permeate out into uh, new regions. But Thessalonica was just one of a thousand different places that God could have sent the gospel, but He didn't. He sent it there. He sent it to these specific people at this specific time through Paul, his specific vessel. And so the story goes that Paul arrives there, begins preaching and teaching that Jesus is the Christ. Now remember, Paul is, is uh, uh, you know, Paul is this once zealot, Jewish fanatic who hated Christianity. Now he's roaming the streets of Thessalonica. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's telling people that Jesus is the Christ, that they're the one they've been waiting on is Jesus, that they don't, they no longer need to be looking for the Messiah, that he's already come. And Paul's talking about how he met him and how God uh, transformed his life and saved him and how he's a follower of God. And so this message begins to go out and people begin to respond and God begins to save people and people begin to, to be, uh, become Christians and followers of Jesus. And so this group of people begin to uh, form this body of believers in just its very infancy. But at the same time, it was causing great distress to the religious powers that be all around. And so uh, the Jews were not happy at all with Paul's message. And it ends up becoming a riot, and Paul has to leave after only being able to spend uh, just about a month there. And so after spending a month, he has to leave. Well, he sends Timothy back to find out what has been going on since he's been gone, and Timothy goes back. I mean, we don't know exactly how the conversation went, but it was probably like, I want you to go back. I mean, listen, the last time they were there, it was bad. So he's like, Timothy, I want you to go back to Thessalonica, which Timothy probably was like... Really? I mean, can't you send Silas? I mean, why is it? Why am I the one that has to go back? I mean, they tried to kill us. But he sends him back, so he goes back, and uh, he said, just be cool, just, you know, wear a, a fake beard or something, and walk through the market and just scan around and see what's going on and come back and give me a report. And he evidently comes back and tells Paul about this amazing transformation that's going on and how this little burgeoning group of believers has begun to flourish in the midst of all of this persecution and, 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 and struggle. And so what we see is that there was a group of people that were in a setting, and then God changed the setting, and now the whole story... See, they were telling one story, but God changes the setting, and now the whole story begins to change. Just like you and me. God puts us in a setting. I mean, you heard that in every one of those testimonies, didn't you? God changed the setting. God's the one that put, put us in this setting and gave us this opportunity, this gospel opportunity. And so we, we, in this new setting, have a choice to make. And our choices are going to determine, we said last week, our context. The details of how our story is told in the setting in which God places us is going to be determined by our choices. See, God puts you in a position of opportunity, but He doesn't force you to take hold of any of those opportunities. That's up to you. That's, on your, that, that's on, on your choices. And so Timothy comes back and says something like, Paul, you're not going to believe it. But the context that these Thessalonians are living in is radically changed. 
I mean, it is radically changed. And he begins to tell them about all these things that are going on. So Paul then sits down and pens this story to this group of people. So that gives you this new context that's unfolding so you can understand why this story is so important and why it means so much to us. And so as the main character in this story, it's not Paul or it's not any of the uh, believers in Thessalonica. It's God. Just like the main character in your story is not you, it's God. But you are a significant part of that story. And so God is the, although the story is either the story of how you embraced God and made choices to consume yourself with things of God, or you made choices to reject God or to push yourself away from God. Either way, God is the central figure in the story. He's the catalyst for all the things that are going to flow out of our stories. And so we ended last week by having a conversation about as our stories unfold, really these choices, they, they center around the things that uh, we think the most about and we care the most about, the things that captivate our affections in the greatest way. Those are the, that, that's the way you can begin to follow the breadcrumbs of what story is my life telling? Well, your life is telling the story of what captures your affections the most. And whatever that is, that's going to be the story that you're telling. But what's crazy about all of this, what's crazy is that, like we said last week, we can have hundreds of people in the same setting and in the same context of opportunity, but have all of these uh, vastly different experiences with the choices that we make, with the affections that we have. That what I'm saying is that people can sit in the, in the, in the context of all the opportunity of a place like this, and their affections are really captivated by their job or their bank account or their hobbies or their sports teams or their spouses or their children or their whatever it is. And not God. And they can sit in the same pew with someone whose affections are radically captured by God and whose story is telling such a radically different and glorious narrative in the very same context. And we see this story in Thessalonians telling us the same thing. And so what I probably will try to remind you of week in and week out as we walk through these pages is that every Christian has unlimited potential, unlimited potential in the context of Christ. I really want you to understand that and know that because the enemy does not want you to know that in Christ you have unlimited potential. You just have to let that sit on your heart for a moment and receive it. And realize that it's, it's not about all the things that you've done. It's not about the, the journey that has led you from wherever you've been to the place that you, you are now. It's not about any of those things. It's about the central character, God, and His power and authority that supersedes all other powers and authorities. And so your guilt and your shame does not thwart God's ability in any way, shape, or form. And so if you walk in the reality of who you truly are, there's, no, there's nothing you can't do. There's no potential you can't reach. So here's a question for this morning. What does a beautiful story look like? Because we need to just have this conversation because, number one, this is the conversation God puts before us. But 
Even if it wasn't, this would maybe be the place that we'd go next because we're all thinking the same thing. Well, okay, what does a beautiful story look like? And here's what a beautiful story looks like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silas, or Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God the Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. As you know what kind of men you were among you, for we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples in all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith towards God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. So let's answer that question. What does a beautiful story look like? Number one, the first component of a beautiful story is character. See, in any story, you need characters, and you need to develop the characters. But in a beautiful story, you need not just characters, but you need character. Look at verse 2. We give thanks always, Paul says, for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. Since the moment Timothy came back and told him what was going on, Paul has been just overwhelmed. It's, it's the way I feel right now about what's going on in Brazil. I think every day about, oh, how I long to be there. I, and I, the things that I'm missing and the way the gospel's working there. And I can't even, I, it just overwhelms me with joy to think about what is happening in the places that I've had the opportunity to walk. The places that God's given us the opportunity to minister. I want to be there when, when, when everyone gathers around and takes that first drink from the well. I want to be there when all the surrounding villages come and see what God has done. I, I, I want to be there to see the places where we've planted churches that are baptizing people at the same rate we are here. It's just amazing. And they're reaching all the villages around them. I want to be there and see that. And Paul says, I... I I never cease giving thanks for you, for your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus in the sight of our God and Father. See, character. Flourishing followers produce thankful leaders. Nothing blesses my heart more than to see people around me flourishing. Flourishing in the midst of trial. Flourishing in the midst of struggle. Flourishing in the midst of pain. It's such an encouragement. I, I so can relate to what Paul... I, I'm so... I, I mean, Thanksgiving is, is just... It's, honestly, it's just another day for me. Every day of my life is Thanksgiving. 
I mean, I wake up every morning and be, thanks be to God, I, I get to be part of an amazing church. I get to be a part of amazing things going on all around the world. I get to be a part of Rescue 100. I get to be a part of, so I mean, there's so many things I get to be a part of. So many reasons for me to be grateful and to be thankful. I get to know you and do life with you. And it's just overwhelming. And so I, I don't even attempt to start listing out all the things I'm thankful for because it would just take forever. Just like, God, thank you. Thank you. And, and see, Timothy says, we, the whole leadership team is so thankful. They, the, all of them say that we're, we're, we're thankful together. They're not just thankful for some of the people. They're not just thankful for the people who, who serve in certain capacities or do certain things. Or, you know, we're, it's, it's so easy to segregate people in, in a large group because they're, they're by, some, by something that we do or some way that we serve or something about us or our occupation or whatever the case may be. But no, no, that's not how it works in the body of Christ. We're all together. We're all one body that, that God has placed together and. And Paul and his team is thankful for that. And, you know, every Tuesday, the staff meets together on Tuesday morning. And we, uh, you know, we have staff meeting. And, and we pray and thank God for you. And, and, and every Tuesday is different. And I thought about it this week. I thought, you know, there's only, there's only one consistency in every single staff meeting at this church. Every single staff meeting that never changes. That when we pray, sometimes all of us, sometimes one or two of us, always, I, I sit there with my head bowed and I listen to Brian say, God, thank you for this church. Thank you for letting us be a part of this. I listen to Rod say, God, thank you. Thank you for all the people that we know in ministry and, and all the struggles that they face all the time. And when they, when, they, when they talk to me about all the things they're facing, I feel guilty about the church that I get a, to be a part of. We just thank God for you. We thank God for this fellowship. Oh, I mean, we're so grateful. I, I look at the smile on Matt's face. He, you can't make him quit smiling. He's just so happy. And when he starts talking about places he's been in, the, you know, me and Brian, we're just dumb. We don't know anything. That's the only place we've ever been. But Matt and Rod, it's not like that. But see, they have context. See, they know. And they start talking about places they've been and things that they've experienced and, you know, all the dysfunction they've been a part of. And they go, and they just smile and say, well, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. See, flourishing followers make thankful leaders. Thankful leaders. And so, why are they so thankful? What are they thankful for? Now, I want you to see. Now, this is just fascinating. I'm so excited about uh, the way God really just broke this uh, text open to me a couple of weeks ago. I've been chomping, waiting to get here. They've made these wonderful choices that have shaped their character in significant ways. But I want you to see what, what is. I want you to look at verse 3. I want you to see these. there's components of character. You see, there's... He talks about faith, he talks about love, and he talks about hope. Those are spiritual components of character. Those are, those are things that should be present in a person's life who has godly, Christ-centered character. But you see, it would be incomplete if you don't look exactly at the way Paul... Look at, look at how Paul penned this. Look at how God had Paul write this specifically out 
so that he highlighted these three characteristics of godly character and he connected them to three choices. The choice of work, the choice of labor, and the choice of patience. You see, the union of these two, you can't separate them. So you, 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 you're in a context where you have opportunity to be a person of faith, a person of love, and a person of hope. But that doesn't automatically make you that person. It's the choices connected with the opportunity that create the reality. So let's look at these three choices. A, choice one, work. Choice one, work. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. Now, I know a few people like that. You see, when I read that verse, I I think about people. People in this fellowship, people in this room. People who don't just put faith on a shelf. Faith isn't something that's just, uh, you know, sitting on their mantle, but they put their faith to work. it's, It's an amazing thing to be in fellowship with people who have a work of faith living out in their life. Faith, first and foremost, is a work of God. But see, here's where the train goes off the track. I think universally we would all agree, well, yes, faith is a, is a, is a work of God. But then so many times we just stop there. We just say, well, it's a work of God, and we stop. But yes, it is first and foremost a work of God. It is resting in the gospel truth and the reality of what God has said and It is all that He is and all that He's accomplished. Yes, that's faith. But that's just the beginning of faith. Faith has implications. Amen? Implications. Faith isn't just something that you you have faith and then you just put it in a box and put it away and go, well, I got faith. I got that taken care of. No, no. There's implications to that. I mean, I want you to to think for a moment. Does does faith in God change anything? If if my, my... My guess would be if you began to do your own survey and you began to walk around and ask people this question, church-going people, people who say they have faith, if you ask them, does faith change anything, they would immediately say yes. And then you would say, now how? What does it change? And my guess would be most people would begin to list out things that faith changes like your eternity. These uh, things that are, are... not yet here. These things that are off in the distance. It changes your eternity or, or these inward things. It changes your, your level of peace or it changes your joy or it changes your thought processes or it change, which all of that is true. But is faith relegated to that? Or does faith have implications that are external, that are obvious, that are outward, that are undeniable? You see, faith in God is first knowing that you're not capable of doing anything in and of yourself. Yes. But that is the the infancy of faith. That is the beginning. Faith is something that's worked out. Faith, Faith grows in experience. That's what faith does. Here's how the Bible explains it in James chapter 2. Someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But James explains it. He says, but do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? You see, faith has implications, external, outward implications. So let's say this. Faith, a real faith, is fruitful. Faith is fruitful. It produces something. 
So as we talked a few weeks ago about the context of the barren fig tree, faith is fruitful. Real faith, genuine faith, Christ-centered faith, it's fruitful. It's fruitful. Choice number two, labor. Labor. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love in verse 3. You see, where faith is going to produce this, uh, this work that's directed towards God, labor is something totally different. It's, it's prompted by love and it's directed towards other people. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that at salvation, God's love is shed abroad. It is emptied out. It is poured into our hearts. And then that love is then experienced. It is, it is fleshed out to other people. That's what it is. And so the love that God pours into us, we then pour out to other people. So labor prompted by love is it's bringing us into this understanding that it's, it's love directed towards others in community. It's a gospel community picture. Paul's saying, I'm so thankful because you have faith that, that works itself out and you have this labor of love. You're, you, you're, you're laboring amongst each other. Your love is evident the way that you love the people around you. You know, as I thought about this labor of love, I thought about how much I miss my friend Sandy Rogers. I thought about how for so long, you know, he was, he, he was such a, a picture of labor of love in my life in this church. And if you were at his funeral service, you remember the words that I said. I, I talked about how I never saw Sandy and he didn't tell me that he loved me. And it's, I appreciate that so much. But it was more than that. See, Sandy Rogers didn't just always say, Pastor, I love you. But he showed me that he loved me. It was more than just a word. The word is important. I mean, I tell you every week that I love you. And I do, man. It's important to say that. But it's more than just a word. It's something that you, you, you show. It's something that you see. It's something that, that he did. You know, I, I thought about how, you know, there's lots of people who say, well, if you need me, call me. And I appreciate it, but they know I'm not calling. I'm not going to call you. There's other people that call you. And they go, hey, I'm going to handle this for you. It's a labor of love. It's, it's this... Uh, this idea of, you know, it, it's, it's, not, it's not easy. It's easy to just say, I love you, and then go on with life. Or it's easy to just express something, but it's a whole other thing to actually put your life behind it, put labor behind it. You see, where, where love doesn't lead to actions, it's merely just sentimentality. That's all it is. And sentimentality can be nice, I mean, you know, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a wonderful greeting card. It makes your heart feel warm and fuzzy for a moment. But then, you know, you close it up and put it down, and then you're back to wherever it is. But you see, when, when somebody shows you that they love you, when they labor in love, it, it's, it's priceless. It's just so meaningful in your heart. You see, the, the word labor, it's, it's one of exceeding, even exhausting effort. I mean, this is, not, this is not easy. 
And this is, this is like we use childbirth and we say, well, how long was she in labor? That's a different context than saying, you know, oh, you know, I really labored. I had to carry that suitcase all the way from the door to here. You see, any woman that's had a child would smack you for trying to say those are the same labor. And that's not the same labor. See, the, the great effort that has been expended on our behalf is the motivation for us to then expend this great effort on behalf of God as we sh- share the love that He's poured out in our hearts with others. Hebrews says it was for the joy set before Him that, that Christ endured the cross. He endured it. It was labor. But He did it with joy. And so we can do hard things but wonderful things. But you see, I think that what makes them so wonderful is that they're hard, right? Yes. So let's suffice it to say this. Love doesn't coast, it costs. I just think the world is filled with love that coasts. Coasting love. Love that just says it. But there's no meat to it. There's no actions to it. Love costs. I mean, if you're really going to love somebody, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to give yourself. Choice three, patience. See, Paul says it was a work of faith, a labor of love, and then a patience of hope. Now, this may be the most difficult of the three of them, really. I mean, they're, they're all giant and wonderful in and of themselves, but I, I just really want to drive home the reality that this should not be mistaken in any way for some shallow optimism I mean, this, this patience and hope is not some, it's not some, it's not some optimistic viewpoint that, you, that, that, that the difficulty of your circumstances are going are gonna to change or, or, or improve. No, no. Listen, that's the prosperity gospel. They may never change. They may never improve. In fact, they may get worse. And that's, that has no bearing on the reality of who God is. No, no. When, when the Bible says this patience of hope, This is a compound word. It means to abide under. To abide under. To to have this kind of patience is is to continue on in the same direction under the weight of something for a duration of time. So it's not just this, well, you know, I can deal with today because I know that tomorrow it's going to get better. Well, it may not get better. And here's the problem. You see that if that kind of mentality and that kind of shallow understanding will just lead you to uh, struggle because when adversity comes or when things get worse or when they don't get better or whatever happens, eventually you, the, you're, you, you, you run out. Because if your patience is just, well, this is just, you know, it's just what I got to deal with today. Well, I don't, well, I mean, I don't know that. There's, there's, there's people in this room that are dealing with things they've been dealing with for years, maybe decades. They may, they may die and go be with Jesus, and things may not change. There are people in this room right now that for 25 years I have prayed for your lost child. For 25 years. And I still pray for them. And they're still lost. Just like my family. And I hope, 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 hope. One day before you die, you get to see them get baptized. But I don't know. And I know it's what you think about at night before you go to sleep. 
And see, you have patience of hope. You've endured a long time under the weight of that struggle. And so it's not just some shallowness that, well, you know, I have hope because I know, well, you know, I don't know. I know what God can do, but I don't know what he'll do. You see, when Paul says, you know, I I call to mind the load that you've been under, the struggle that you've been, I mean, the persecution in Thessalonica, the, the challenges that you're facing, and you're working out your faith and you're laboring in love, and yet who would, the only way to explain people in that situation being hopeful is supernatural. It's the only way to explain it. There'd be no other way of saying these people would be hopeful, but it's got to be supernatural. Yeah. These are the folks you want around you. These are the folks you want to you be in community with, you want to do life with. You want to work, walk through life with people who say, I, I can endure whatever this world throws at me because I know Jesus is with me and I know he's never going to leave me or forsake me. And I know that He's always good and he's always sovereign. You see, those are people that you want because it's contagious. You get around those people and they, they just boost up your, your, your hope meter and they, they make you more and more in love with King Jesus because you watch them live. That's the kind of patience and hope that they had. So Paul's saying that their character is built on this work of faith, this labor of love, this patience of hope. So let's sum it up this way. Here's a good summary statement, all right? Flourishing followers, people who flourish in God in the midst of trials and persecution, they're they're in faith, are oriented upward towards God. See, their faith is oriented upward towards God. In love, they're directed outward towards others. And in hope, they're encouraged onward towards a glorious future with Jesus. You see, there they are. They're living in this unreal persecution. They're, they're being, the, 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 like I told you last week, the man that Paul stayed with at his house in Thessalonica, Jason. They drug him out of his house. They beat him. They took all of his money and they threw him back in the house. And they said, now listen, if that doesn't teach you, we're going to throw you in prison. And who knows what it'll be if that doesn't teach you. And what I'm telling you is, and here's this hope in them. This, under all of that, they have this hope. You know why? Because they know Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. You see, sometimes that's all I got. Sometimes I look around. I look around at the suffering around me. I look around at the expectations that I can never meet. I look around at the the challenges that just, you know, pile up on my life. And I mean, if I'm looking for some, hey, you know, tomorrow's going to be a better day thing. I mean, it may be worse. But Jesus is coming back. See, I always got that. He's coming back. No matter what happens, he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming to get me. And he said that he's going to prepare a place for me. And that wherever he is, I'm going to be also. And amen, I'm waiting for that day. Praise the Lord. So see, there's this onward towards this glorious future with Jesus. So now how does this happen? Now isn't God good? Watch this. How does this happen? Of all the things, I'm telling you, God is so good to us. How does this happen, number two? You should know this by now. God's been speaking this into your life in such a significant way. You'll always look back and say, you know, there was this section at the end of 2016 where God 
week in and week out in, in every different way. It doesn't matter what text. I, and look, I'm not choosing. These are just laid out in front of me. Identity. Identity. Look at what he's telling us here. Number two, identity. Verse four. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. See, we see that when people flourish, when followers flourish, like in Thessalonica, when followers flourish in, in MMBC, oh my goodness. They know first and foremost at the core of who they are, they've been pursued by God. See, they realize, I didn't, I didn't put myself in this setting. God didn't plant me in this vineyard. I mean, I didn't plant myself in this vineyard. God did it. He planted me here. See, they know that. You, you, I don't believe you can flourish without knowing that. I, don't, I believe it's impossible to flourish without knowing. You've got to know who you are. You've got to know how you got here. God's not passively just waiting around for you to, you know... Come to Him and then achieve this faith and just sort of, you know, labor out in your own strength this love and then just, you know, grit out and conjure up some man-centered hope. I don't know. That's not what happened. It's your identity. And so again, for the millionth time, let's just drive this home. What we do does not define who we are, but who we are defines what we do. That these choices are choices... Listen, the people in Thessalonica that made the choices to work and to labor and to be patient, they didn't make these choices because they're smarter than everybody else. They didn't make these choices because they're, they were luckier than everybody else or they had a better family upbringing. Or, it had nothing to do with any of those things. They made these choices because I believe the Bible teaches that at the core of who they are, they knew who they are. They had an identity in Christ. You can't make the choice to work, to labor, to be patient and hope. You can't make that choice if you don't know that God first pursued you. That He's the one that came and found you. He's the one that changed your setting. He's the one that put you here with this context of opportunities. He did that. See, that is the, the beginning, the catalyst for all of these choices that rewrite these stories into such amazing things. It's identity. Got to know, brothers and sisters, you got to know that you are, if you don't know anything else, you're loved by God. I mean, whenever somebody says, well, who are you? Don't say I'm a mom or a dad or I'm a banker or I'm a fireman or I'm a, I'm a this or I'm a that. You're not, no, this is who you are. Who, are you, who am I? I'm loved by God. I'm loved by God. I've been pursued by God. I've been captured by God. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted by God. That's who I am before I'm anything else. That's who we are. And so Paul brings up this amazing picture of God's pursuit and God's sovereignty. And he says that we've been elect by God. And he doesn't say this to bring up controversy. He doesn't, he doesn't say this so you get all stressed out about, oh boy, here we go. Now, you know, this whole election controversy, it's not a controversy. There ain't no controversy about election in the Scripture. Only controversy about elections in Washington, D.C. There ain't no controversy about election in the Scripture. It's just wonderful and simple, and it ought to bless your heart every time you read it. Because you know what election means? It means God loves you. He loves you. 
And he snatched you up without you doing anything to earn it or deserve it. That's what it means. It means that the only, the only, the, the only reason you can point to for all the, 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 the amazing opportunities that are before you is because God loves you. He loves you. That's what election means, that he loves you. So this assurance, it's not in our, our faithfulness. But it's in God's faithfulness to us. It's not my faithfulness to God. It's His faithfulness to us. You see, uh, the, the Christian life is one that... It, it's not self-motivation. This is why he says that it came to you in, not, not in word only, but in power in the Holy Spirit. Because it, with, if it's not in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's nothing going to happen. I mean, you, you, if there's no power, if the Holy Spirit's not here, you're just sitting in a room listening to a talk. You're just listening to a talk. I mean, you might as well be watching television. You might as well be reading a book. You might as well be on the internet watching a TED talk. It's just a talk. But when the Holy Spirit shows up, the power of God is in, in His Word and in the proclamation of His Word and in the, the, the power of what this moment of togetherness as the body of Christ is in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what, that's, and the evidence of that is the transformation that we see around us, that, that God is a part of what we're doing. And so we don't have to always question ourselves and say, well, you know, maybe we ought to be doing more of this or maybe we ought to be doing more of that or maybe we ought to... Listen, there's a million things we could do and there's a million things we could quit doing, but here's the thing, God is in the midst of it. So what you want to do is do what God's in the midst of. You want to be where God's working. You want to be a part of what God's doing. You want to look around you and say, hey, amen. God's in it. I want to be right there with God. I want to be where God's working, where there's power, where the Holy Spirit's present. And this is where their assurance is, 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 is grounded in, it's anchored in their identity. If, if, you, if you drift off the moorings of your identity... What is the first thing that's going to indicate that, uh-oh, Houston, we got a problem? Your choices are going to become a disaster. Because the power to make gospel-centered choices comes from your identity in Christ. And so that's why Paul says, brings, I mean, all that, the entire verse 4 and 5, they're all about identity. It's the pinnacle of uh, the essence of God's love for us, that he displayed his love for us, not, not in, in any other way, but primarily through Jesus. He sent Jesus. You see, God invaded our setting through Jesus. The Thessalonica, the, the, the people in Thessalonica, we're just living their life. See, some of you, just a few weeks ago, just a few months ago, were just living your life. I, 25 years ago, I was just living my life. I didn't, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know anything about my setting. I didn't have any clue about context. I wasn't, do you think I was sitting around thinking about the story that my life's telling me? Not, none of that was even on my radar screen, but it was a reality, but I didn't know. But in the midst of my Ordinary flow of life. God invaded my ordinary. He invaded my life. And He revealed Himself to me. And He changed my setting. And when He changed my setting, 
He changed my identity. And when he changed my identity, he changed my capacity. My ability to make choices was changed through what God had done. And so we're sitting here this morning, much like the the group of people that were reading their story. Their story is our story. The main character in their story is the main character in our story. The, the, The different pieces along the way may look a little bit different, but it's the it's still got the, 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 the hand of the same author. Here we are this morning. You were doing life. Maybe you're here this morning and you are doing life. You're sitting there and you're listening to these testimonies going, but that's me. I mean, I just came here this morning because somebody invited me. Or I just came here because, you know, somebody I know is getting baptized. Or... And while you're sitting there, you're realizing... Well, that's me. I've just been doing life. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm realizing God, God is revealing himself to me. He's, he's orchestrating these events in my life to, to change my setting. But you see, in changing your setting, it's, it's, it's the reality of his love for you. He loves you so much that he pursues you enough to invade your life too. He gave his son Jesus to be able to do that. Think of the price he paid to invade your ordinary and to change your setting. But here's the thing. He doesn't force you to do anything. He invades your life. He changes your setting. But the context is up to you. It's up to you. See, I can't write your story. You can't write my story. It's your story. You're writing it. And so for some of us this morning, it's, it's maybe the reality of doing a little bit of inventory and asking ourselves now, how's my character and my story? Am I working out my faith? Am I laboring in love? Do I have this patience of hope? Is that, is, that, is that me? Are there areas in my life where I need to be more conscious? I need to, I need to, be, uh, I need to pay more attention to that. Well, if, if that's the case, then you need to back up and understand that it starts with your identity. See, maybe, maybe this morning you've been saved for a long time. But pages have just been flipping in your, in, your, in your book. And nothing significant has been written down. And you're, you're realizing that all of your affection has been captivated by things that aren't going to matter in eternity. You know, your job's not the most important thing about you. It's important, but it's not the most important. Your hobbies are not the most important thing about you. Be very careful about what you let your affections get sucked into. Is there a a day of the week that you live for? Not because it's Sunday. No, you, you live for it because it's your sports day or it's your free time day. Or it's the day that you can make extra money day. Or it's the whatever it is, you fill in the blank day. 
And so you're writing a story about something. Something. But here's the encouragement. You know, you're in this setting, and it'd be easy for the voice in your head to say, yeah. But pastor, you don't, you don't know me. God can't, he's not going to use me to do anything significant. He's not going to do anything great in my life. I mean, I'm, I've, I've, I've made too many mistakes. I've squandered so many opportunities. I'm so far behind, I'm never going to catch up. I don't have the ability. I don't have the skill. Excuse, excuse, excuse. I just don't. But, but hold on a second. Wait a minute. Think about the stories that you heard in baptism this morning. I want you to think about the story that spans across the stories. That across all those stories is another story. There's a story of a husband and wife who are telling a story with their life that our home is open, our front door is, is, is open to you and you can come in and we're going to share Jesus with you. And we love you and care about you. It's a story about a, another husband and wife who said, you know, our door is open and, and you can come in and you can live here. You can just live here. You can stay here as long as you want. But we're going to talk about Jesus and you're going to go to church with me, but you can stay here. That's their story. That's a beautiful story. It's a story about guys who go to work and for a long time they went to work in the same place. But then something changed one day and they started writing a new story. In the same setting, they changed their context. And now, people are coming to faith in Christ at work, one after another, after another, after another. Right? It's a story. What about you? Who lives next door to you? Who lives across the street from you? Do you even know them? Have you talked to them about Jesus? Who, who works with you? Do you? Have you told them about Jesus? Have you talked to them about the Lord? Have you? Is your story, when you stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, is your story going to be told about how you share Jesus with people? About how you, you made choices because you know who you are in Christ. And so you made courageous choices to do things that were scary But you're so assured of who you are in Christ that you can make those choices. It's a beautiful story. There's beautiful stories all over this room. I dream of the day when every story in this room is beautiful. When we're all telling a beautiful story with our life. And the central character is God. And how he pursued us. And how as a result of his pursuit and capture of my affection and your affection, we then worked out our faith and labored in our love and found patience in our hope when we cry together, when we bury one another, when we we sit in hospital waiting rooms for hours on end together, when we cook meals for each other, when the country falls apart around us, when, the, when, when persecution, the threat of persecution begins to rear its head towards us, that's okay. Our hope is founded 
in the assurance of who we are and what he said and what he's done. What's your story? What is it this morning? Here's what I want us to do. I want you to stand. I want you to keep your eyes open. I want you to face forward and do a little different today. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing a song together that I think sums up everything that we've talked about this morning. The words are going to be on the screen. You can read the words or you can sing the words. But as we're doing that, this altar is open. If you want to come and kneel down at the altar and pray, I want you to come. As soon as the music starts, just make your way down and come. If you want to come down here and grab my hand or one of the other pastors, we're going to be down here. If, there's, if, if your story is going to change today and, and, and you want us to be a part of that, you just come and, and tell us whatever that is. And we're going to pray with you and encourage you, okay? But that's what we're going to do together. We're going to experience this all together at one time. We're going to think about all that God's done on our behalf and how that reality has afforded us this amazing, amazing capacity to make extraordinary choices with our life and tell such a beautiful story. All right. Eyes open, facing forward. I'm going to pray. It's going to be weird. Let's do this. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you're all in the midst of this moment. And as I'm looking and being looked at and all together we're sharing in this moment, God, the reality that our life is telling a story together. And that this moment right now is part of all of our stories together. And just like these people at Thessalonica, here we are and you're the one that put us in this this setting. So God, thank you. Thank you that your love is undeniable. Your pursuit of us is absolutely undeniable. None of us would be in this place today if it weren't for what you've done. And so God, now help us to in that reality of who we are in you to begin to write a beautiful story for your glory. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar's open. If you want to come pray, you come pray. I'm here. The other pastors are here.